of our Philippians series. We're actually not, we're actually towards the end of our Philippians series. Can you believe we've been in Philippians for about 12 weeks now, 14 weeks? I don't know, but we're in chapter four. And this series, I just want to point out again, like the artwork for this series. If you see here, Andrea did this and she like drew it all out. But just a reminder, it's called the art of finding joy. And she did a great job to, to bring that out. Uh, I want to point that out because this morning we're really going to focus in on joy and talk about what joy is and, and how you find it and, and, what, what, and why you even need it. So um, another thing we're in is Mental Health Awareness Month. And the last, last couple sermons we've dealt with some mental health um, issues. And today, this passage that Peter read is often looked at as a passage that focuses on anxiety. Um, anxiety is one of the most common mental illnesses diagnosed uh, in our country. So in, there's anxiety disorders, there's included in that is uh, PTSD, OCD, phobias, uh, panic attacks. And these are all kind of included in anxiety disorders. And I've actually talked to a lot of you guys about anxiety issues. I mean, it's one of the, the biggest issues in our city. I think our city is kind of a breeding ground for anxiety disorders. All the pressures, um, we lived here for about two to three years before we actually, or two years, I guess, before we actually went out of the city. And it was amazing once we got out of the city I didn't know we were under pressure until we got out of the city. I was like, oh my gosh, this feels so awesome. Uh, but the, the city, there's just so much going on. And, and it just breeds anxiety in us. And so a lot of you guys, the, the chances are a lot of you guys have experienced anxiety. Um, and maybe one of those four things. But um, this passage doesn't, this passage, I'm not going to talk about anxiety per se this morning. Because a lot of times we take this passage and we talk about anxiety disorders, but it'd be like me doing a group marriage counseling session this morning. The reality is I can't do that because all of you guys have different issues, and anxiety is the same way. Uh, there's different triggers. There's different... Uh, you, you take that whole gamut of anxiety disorders, and there's so many different things that you guys might experience if you deal with anxiety. So I, I liken anxiety to... I don't know, this is an old movie. Have you guys seen Mr. Deeds? Uh, yeah, okay. The butler on Mr. Deeds is like anxiety. He just shows up, and he shows up unannounced. He's, he's like really sneaky. Anxiety is that way. Um, here's another illustration. So I used to work at a boys and girls club, uh, which is why we started, when we moved in the city, we started working with a K club in Cabbage Town. That's, that's one of the main reasons. We wanted to identify an organization, and I had affinities towards a boys and girls club, and they did a lot of good things in Regent Park, and so I just started volunteering there. Uh, and in seminary, I, I worked at a boys and girls club. I did education programs, and then I was like the fun guy. Like, I did the, the rec stuff for them. And, and so in the summer, you had four days. Like, I did after school during the school year, but then in the summer, it was like eight to six with probably 200, yeah, two, 250 kids ranging from kindergarten all the way to high school. And it was just crazy. Um, summers were just crazy. And they would get antsy, and it was so hot. This was, this was in the south, so it was so hot. 
So throughout the summer, we'd take them on field trips. And I was the field trip guy. Like, and the field trips were great because you missed the whole day. You would take a group of 40 to 50 kids, and you'd be out on a field trip with them the whole day. And so this field trip took them to Jelly Beans, which is a, um, like a skating rink. Not ice skating, like roller skating. Yeah, roller skating rink. Um, and, and so we would go there, we'd spend the day there, we'd eat lunch there, we'd have fun. And then when it would be time to go, I would have the guy do an announcement across the whole, the whole campus. So he would announce, hey, boys and girls club kids, it's time to go. And then he'd do that again, he'd do it again, he'd do it like three or four times. And then I'd line up all the kids and I would count them all because I knew how many we brought. So I would count them all. And I would do that multiple times. It was like OCD. It's like, I got to count you three times. And then when I walk away, I got to come back and I got to count you again. So, but it was like, because kids are, they don't just stand in one spot. So I'm counting these kids. We get them all. I put them on the bus. And guess what? I count them again on the bus just to make sure. We get back to the club. And I'm like, yes, another successful field trip. Then the phone rings. And it's jelly beans. And they're like, hey, there's a little kid named Benny here. <laughs> and he says he's with you guys. And he's crying because you guys left him. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> I, I'm that guy who left the kid at the field trip spot. And I felt horrible because now, like, I got to apologize to him and my bosses and his parents or grandparents or aunts and aunts, whoever it is. And then I got to go pick up Benny. Uh, and um, the thing is, Benny was in the line when I counted because I know Benny. He's a good kid. Uh, I love this kid. He's, he's a very cute kid. He was one of the kindergartners. Um, this is his first time skating, so I knew exactly who he was. And he was in the line, but then he wasn't. And I could have sworn he was on the bus, <laughs> but he wasn't. And I did everything right, but Benny's like anxiety. It's like sometimes you can do everything right, and then Benny calls you and says, hey, I'm here, and then panic sets in. And, and that's like for you guys who are experiencing anxiety, it can be very much like that. You can even know your triggers. You can even know exactly what triggers the anxiety in you. And you can do everything right, but then all of a sudden, something happens. And you snap, panic attack, you know, we can go, go through the list of, of disorders again. But um, I'm not going to focus on that this morning as much as I'm going to say this passage is about worrying. So when, when Paul writes, don't be anxious, don't take that word and hijack it with our society's view of anxiety, just think worrying in your mind. So what Paul is saying is don't worry, and he's using the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. And, and this is a basic human predicament, worrying is. It's a basic human condition. We all do it. Some of us do it less than others. Some of us do it more concentrated. But basically, the foundation of any of these uh, dis disorders, too, is worrying. And now, I'm not going to get into, like, uh, physiological implications there, chemical, things like that. All that is, uh, all that is another discussion. We're just going to talk about the foundation 
of what Jesus wants us to live, of how he wants us to live. And that is just simply not to worry this morning. And, and so we're going to deal with that. And Jesus says in, Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, in, in Matthew chapter 6, he says worrying stems from two things. There's two things that trigger worrying. One of them is you don't know who God is. You just don't know God as well as you should. Number two, worrying stems from this, and a trigger for worrying is you don't know yourself. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, don't you know that you're of more value than these things and that God is going to take care of you? Don't you know your value in the kingdom? It's more than you think it is. So he says, you don't know God and you don't know yourself. So this morning, um, we're going to deal with some of those things, but mainly we're going to deal with how do we find joy, not attack worrying or not worrying. We're going to talk about how do we find joy and let that take care of the rest, okay? So... This is what the statement I want you to remember as we go through the sermon. You will find joy if you will lose yourself, okay? You'll find joy if you'll lose yourself. So this passage begins with Paul saying in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And then he repeats it right afterwards. He says, again, I'll say rejoice. Basically, he's saying find joy in the Lord. In Jesus, find joy in Jesus. Do it always, through any circumstance, all the time. But then, why do you think he repeats it right away? It's because there's so many things in our lives that suck joy out of our lives. And so, he repeats it for this huge emphasis on find joy in the Lord always. And he says, I'm going to say it again. Find joy in the Lord. You know, our, our culture teaches us that our, our, our journey in, in life is a journey in finding ourselves. Like, your journey in life is finding yourself. You need to find yourself. You hear this. I was in a bookstore yesterday, and they have a whole section on self-help stuff, uh, which, is, which is fine. If you like that stuff, that's, that's cool. Um, they're, they have a whole section on it, but a lot of it is focused on finding yourself, on finding the better you, on, on living boldly, on, on, you know, a lot of these things. Uh, but the Bible teaches us that our life's journey isn't about finding ourselves; it's actually about finding God. And so the journey you're on this morning, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, is and always has been in finding God. Now, here's the paradox of the scriptures. When you find God, you actually lose yourself. But when you lose yourself, you actually find your true self. When you find God, you're actually finding your true self because you're finding who you're created to be, who he's created you to be, who he's, who, what image he's put in you. The Bible begins by saying, uh, we have the image of God in us. So when we find God, we actually do find us. But it's this process of losing ourselves, losing things that prevent us from finding God, okay? Um, and when we do that, it's when we can truly be, be confident in who we are. So we'll, we'll address that a little bit later. Uh, while, we're sitting, while we were in worship earlier, 
Um, we're singing the song, God is good, all the time, all the time, God is good. I love that song. Uh, Reagan, my daughter I was holding, she's four years old, and she was singing it in my ear as, as I was holding her. And we haven't taught her the song. We don't have this on our, on our yeah, like our, what do you call it? I, I was going to say iPod, but who uses an iPod anymore? Uh, we don't have this on our music at home. Uh, she just hears it when we sing it here every now and then. And actually, a couple weeks ago, I was, I was sitting in the living room, and she was in another room somewhere, and I heard her singing something. And I'm like, what is she singing? And she was singing this, this chorus, this song. She was just singing, I don't know what she was playing with a doll, or she was, I don't know what she was doing. Maybe she was going to the bathroom, who knows. And she was singing, God is good, all of the time, all the time, God is good. And my heart just melted. I was like, ah, oh, that is so awesome. Like, we didn't even have to teach her that. She just, she just learned it by being around the church, that God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. You know, the song I was taught growing up, and this is before my parents became believers, was if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. <laughs> now, one song is about finding God. If you're happy and you know it, it's about finding yourself. And you know what? Sometimes you just don't want to clap your hands, right? You're just not happy, and you know it, and you don't want to clap your hands. But when you have this truth that God is good all the time, all the time God is good, whether you feel like it or not, it's the truth you can believe, okay? And that's what, that's what joy is. That's what we're going to talk about. And so remember that statement, you'll find joy if you'll lose yourself. And Paul gives us three things here. If you find joy, these three things will happen. First is, uh, he says, uh, let, your let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So first is you'll exemplify reasonableness, okay? He says, let it be known to everybody. Now, we see that word reasonableness. Uh, I wanted to substitute it, but that's the word um, here. Let me talk to you a little bit about reasonableness. Uh, this word is actually a very complex Greek word. I normally don't go into the Greek here, but it's a very complex word. Uh, it's, there's, one, there's one word in the Old Testament that's like this. It's, the word is chesed, and it refers to God's love in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, this word is... It's translated as, as love. Some, some try to translate it as loving kindness. But neither of those really describe what God's love is like. Because the word chesed in the Old Testament is actually this word that is overflowing with the love of God. It's actually more than love is what the word conveys, which is kind of crazy when you think about more than, you're like, how do you get more than love? But that's why some translations attach loving kindness to it. Because they're like, well, how do we convey this? It's talking about this, this, this love that God has that is never failing, that is always pursuing, that is relentless, that is never giving up on you, that is always chasing you and always wants you to come to God. It's that kind of love, okay? And you can't put all those, you can't put that whole thing each time that one word appears. So this word in, in the New Testament is kind of like its counterpart. It's like that. It's full of meaning. It's just just brimming with, with meaning. And so here, uh, it's been translated as reasonableness. If you, look at, if you look at some other translations, they've tried to do it as gentleness, 
um, uh, humility, cons consideration has this word in it, consideration, has an element of selflessness in it. If we were to translate it as two words, like the loving kindness thing, we would maybe say gracious humility. It has like this very, um, yeah, it just has a lot of power behind it. And so when you see reasonableness here, it actually means more than what we probably think of. We, we think, okay, when we think of reasonable, we think, you know, I'll pay a reasonable price for that. Like, I don't know how else we would use reasonable. <laughs> um, you know, or let's be reasonable here. Uh, but it doesn't, it, it's, it's more than that. It's way more than that. It has a focus on the other person. It has a gentleness component to it. Um, the problem with just translating it as gentleness is we don't really compliment people that way, do we? I mean, especially as, especially as a guy, um, I'm not like, yo, hey, Isaac. <laughs> and Isaac's like uh, a big burly carpenter type guy. I'm not like, yo, hey, Isaac, you're so gentle, man. You're so gentle today. Like, I really appreciate your gentleness. <laughs> like, it's, it's kind of weird for me saying it right now in jest. I appreciate your gentleness. Um, we don't really, we don't really do that. We, we think of gentle, we think of like bunnies. We're, we think of bunnies, right? You guys own a bunny. Like, they're like, oh, that's so gentle. Um, that's probably the last time I used the word when you guys brought the bunny to, <laughs> to Easter. <laughs> uh, and, but the thing is, the Apostle Paul uses this very word, gentleness, gracious humility, reasonableness, to show who Jesus is. And he urges the Corinthians in one of his other letters, he says, I urge you by the meekness and the gentleness, the reasonableness, the, the Greek word here is, is epi case, of Christ to, to follow my example. And then he says Christian leaders, in another book, he says Christian leaders should actually exemplify this as well. They should exemplify gentleness. They should exemplify this reasonable, this, this gracious humility, this selflessness, okay? I was at a <clears throat> graduation a couple weeks ago. The school will remain unnamed, but if you were there with me, you know what school I'm talking about. <laughs> um, and one of the speakers, I'm not bashing the school, one of the speakers uh, for that day was, um, he's a longtime professor of the school, and he was a counseling, a counseling professor, and, uh, and he's, he's given a pretty good ad address to the, the graduation people and, and us, and uh, he says, you know how you need to love others. He's like, we don't know how to love others. But here's a secret to loving other people. And I'm like, yeah, here it comes. He says, you need to love yourself. You need to learn how to love yourself. And I was like, no. <laughs> because that flies directly in the face of Jesus. When he says, in order to love others, you need to learn to love God. The greatest commandment is this, when Jesus is asked, what the greatest commandment is and how to sum up the commandments. He says all the commandments are summed up in this. Love God and love others. The problem in our society is we love ourselves too much. 
I was, I was telling Adam this uh, earlier this week, and that was his first reaction. He's like, we don't need to learn how to love ourselves. We already do it too much. Just look at your values. Just, just examine yourself for a moment. Look at your values. Look at, look at your, uh, where you spend your time. Look at your Facebook page, a.k.a. your fake book page. Just, just think about it. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag. Uh, just think about it. Um, just examine your life and where you put your energies. You're too engulfed in self-love. So the secret to loving others isn't to love yourself more. That, that detracts from loving others. The secret to loving others is to learn how to love God. And when Jesus says this, he says some other things too. What he doesn't say is, if you're my follower, and the secret to this is to make yourself, you know, so, so one point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to love our enemies. He doesn't say, hey, protect yourselves. He says, no, actually, maybe try putting yourselves in harm's way to love your enemies. He, he doesn't say, uh, you need to be and look and feel more like society. He says, actually, it's the opposite. You need to be salt. You need to preserve elements of society, discard others, and you need to be light. You need to shine light in the darkness. And guess what, guys? The darkness hates the light because the darkness flees when the light comes. Jesus, Jesus says, he, he didn't say, you know, make yourselves as comfortable and as safe as possible. And that's the secret to the Christian life. He says, actually, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, in that, rejoice and be glad. You see, the kingdom isn't about yourself. The kingdom of God is about God and the other. And so the secret to, these, to, to loving others isn't to love yourself. It's, it's, to, it's to love others. It's to, it's to love God and then to love others. So Paul here is saying, that characteristic should be known to everybody. And it's a characteristic that Christ himself has shown us and exemplified for us. So then we exemplify it for others and for our city. So the second thing is, you'll excel in prayer. Okay, bear with me for a second. You'll excel in prayer. Paul says here, the Lord is at hand. I love how Peter read this. He, he read it like how I feel like Paul would have been speaking it to, to the Philippian church here. He says, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. The Lord is close to us. Jesus is close. He's near to us. This isn't like, a, oh, we need to get scared. The Lord is at hand. No, he's saying, actually, just God is near us. Jesus is, is with us. So... The result of that is, in verse 6, don't worry about anything. Don't be anxious about anything, because God is close. But in everything, by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So, I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, here we go. He's just going to say, we need to learn how to pray more. 
and we just need to pray more, and that's going to take care of all of our worries, blah, 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 wah, wah, wah. That's, that's not what I'm going to say. Well, it's kind of what I'm going to say. <laughs> so yes and no. Our problem isn't that we don't pray enough. Our problem is we don't know how to pray, and we don't even know why we should pray. You know, one of the only things that uh, the disciples explicitly ask Jesus to teach them is how to pray. It's one of the only things in the Gospels that, that the disciples explicitly ask Jesus to teach them is how to pray. And I'm, I'm always like, why is that? Well, the simple answer is because they don't know how to, <laughs> and they want Jesus to teach them. And so I'm going to give you five common misconceptions of prayer about, or about prayer and what prayer is really about. So number one is we often think prayer is a monologue, but prayer is actually a dialogue. It's an exercise in hearing God. Okay? Prayer isn't just you speaking things into the air and just talking nonstop. Prayer is actually talking and then listening for God to talk. It's an exercise in hearing God, okay? Uh, we've talked about hearing God before. Um, I'll just say a couple quick notes on this. When, when I pray, I will often sit in silence. We've lost kind of this, this sitting in silence thing in, in our society and, and even in the church, what it means to sit in silence. Uh, I've tried to, every morning I try to sit in silence for two minutes um, and then I'm working my way up. Because if you haven't sat in silence for two minutes, and I'm an extrovert, so I'm like, I get bored. Um, but if you haven't tried two minutes, I guess it's a long time. I'm like sitting there, and it feels like five minutes, and I look up, and it's like 30 seconds. <laughs> uh, so just try sitting in silence. And God, God uh, that's just part of the exercise in hearing God. Now, God speaks through a whole bunch of different ways. He speaks through his scriptures. He speaks through prayer. He spe speaks through your thoughts. He's, we have the mind of Christ, Paul says. He speaks through other people. He speaks through nature. He speaks through uh, a whole bunch of different things. We can hear God speaking uh, in a bunch of ways. God speaks audibly. I've never heard God speak audibly, but he does. We see it in the scriptures. Okay, so prayer is not just a monologue. It's actually us speaking to God and listening to God. So start to cultivate that in, in your prayer life. Number two is the misconception is prayer fails when I don't get what I want. So you pray, nothing happens. But actually, prayer is about conforming your will to God's will. So actually, prayer succeeds in the simple ask. Jesus says in the Gospels to ask, seek, and knock. And those, those, verbs, those, those verbs, those words are actually in this present tense. So it's saying, keep asking, ask, and keep asking. It's constant. Ask, 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 knock, 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 seek, 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 is what it's saying. So the prayer succeeds in just asking and just seeking and just knocking. And, and what happens when you begin to pray and you begin to listen is your will is actually, actually begins to conform to God's will. And, um, and then you begin to excel in prayer. So number three, prayer begins with dear God and ends with amen. That's a common misconception about prayer. Prayer is actually an endless redemption of your thought life. 
It's just more concentrated at times. So Paul says this in Thessalonians. He says, pray without ceasing. And I always thought, how do you do that? Like, I can't just sit down with no distractions and talk to God all day. Well, well, when he writes that, he knows that. Even back then in, like, the first century, their lives weren't like that. They were busy. Uh, he says, he says here, uh, he's meaning that we can redeem our thought life as we pray. And so if you think about prayer, whether you're praying out loud or you're praying in your mind, uh, it's your thoughts. Your thoughts are either uh, inaudible or, or audible. And so redeeming your thought life throughout the day is a, just an exercise in prayer. So something I've tried, I haven't been very successful at it so far, but something I've been trying to do um, during the day in order to make this uh, a practice in my life is to, when I wake up in the morning, is to say, God, I'm here, to say something quick to God. Normally I say, speak, Lord, your servant hears. This is coming from First Samuel. Um, and then I don't say amen. Because a lot of times in the church, amen closes our conversation with God, and, and that's it. Until the last thing I do before I go to bed. I'll say amen. So, so in my mind, it's, it's just, again, nothing magical about it, but in my mind, it's made the whole day a prayer for me. And it's made me realize that I'm with God through the whole day, okay? When I'm shopping, when I'm going to uh, a restaurant, when I'm with my kids, when I'm at their school, when I'm with Missy, when we're listening to music, when we're watching Netflix, you know, whatever we're doing, that God is, that God is with me because it's starting to redeem all the thoughts in, in my life, okay? Uh, number four, two more. Prayer is best done extemporaneously and emotionally. Extemporaneously simply means without preparation. So the problem is, the reason I'm highlighting this is because most of us, if you've been in church for a while, you get taught how to pray by how we pray up here or up here. And that's extemporaneous. That's just we're praying whatever our, our, our heart leads us to. And sometimes we think, oh, well, prayer is best done that way, just extemporaneously and emotionally. Because in a worship service, sometimes we get emotional. And, um, but prayer is best done just when you're communicating truth. Now, sometimes that's extemporaneous. And sometimes it's emotional, but it doesn't have to be, okay? Prayer is best done simply when you're just communicating truth. For instance, scripture, your heart, okay? Sometimes I'll just pray a whole passage of scripture back to God, and that's my prayer. I just take a passage of scripture, and I just pray it back to God, okay? That's a practice you can do to start getting truth into your heart and out in your prayer life. All right, uh, number five, prayer is only necessary when things are rough. So many of us pray just when we need something from God or when things are just a little rough. But if you think of prayer in this way, it's going to change your prayer life. Prayer is simply about being in God's presence. That's it. That's why you can be silent in prayer or you can be speaking in prayer because you're just in God's presence. Sometimes I just imagine sitting next to 
Jesus while I'm sitting there in silence. And that's part of my prayer life. Now, I don't like to imagine the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus petting a baby lamb, <laughs> a little baby sheep. So I actually picture, like, the Jesus in Revelation that has, like, brightness and, like, his eyes are like fire and, you know, he's just, like, um, victorious. You know, I picture that Jesus. Um, so, uh, yeah, prayer is simply just about being God's presence. And so prayer isn't a panacea. It's not a cure-all. But I believe God's presence is. And when you're in God's presence, that's when worrying goes away. And that's when your cares dissipate. And that's when healing happens. Sickness, emotional, mental, physical, whatever healing it is, when you're in God's presence. Because when God is there and you're in God's presence, those things flee. And so if you, if you focus just, about, just on being God's presence, that's going to completely transform your prayer life. All right. So we're, I gave you two things already. Exemplify reasonableness, excel in prayer. And now the third thing that, that Paul deals with is if you do those, you'll experience the peace of God. And this is, this is the last uh, thing he says here. He says in verse 7, And the peace of God which surpasses, excels, transcends, goes beyond all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When he says that, that the peace of God transcends, surpasses, excels, goes beyond, goes past all understanding, he's talking about your mind here. The peace of God goes beyond what your mind can comprehend. So when your mind, your worrying, your anxiety, your thoughts tell you, oh, I'm not good enough to do this. Uh, I'm not gifted enough. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. What if this happens? What if that? Why do they say that to me? What are they actually thinking about me? You know, your mind just races, right? He says the peace of God goes past all of that. The peace of God actually transcends it. It is greater than that. It's greater than your thoughts. It is more infinite than your finite mind can understand. And, and guess what? You're probably not even going to understand the peace of God. He says the peace of God is greater than our minds. We can't even comprehend it. We can just experience it. We can just live in it. And he says it's like this. It guards your hearts you know, your seat of emotion, it guards your hearts. And when he says guards, it's, it's like this, uh, it's this militaristic term. Like you have sentries around, around your heart guarding it. And they're just standing there, like those soldiers at Buckingham Palace or uh, the Grand Palace in Thailand. They're just standing there, uh, not doing anything except guarding things from coming in that are gonna, that are gonna destroy that peace. And then he says that also happens with your mind. The peace of God guards your mind, your seat of reason. And you may not understand the peace of God because it transcends your mind, but you will experience the peace of God. And he says this is all done in Christ Jesus. He begins his passage by saying, Rejoice in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
And also, he ends it with Christ Jesus, who will guard your hearts and your minds with the peace of God. And that's so powerful. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, that should really excite you this morning, that you have all of that as a follower of Jesus. And so for you just sitting there today, follower of Jesus or not, losing yourself is key to finding this type of joy. And when you find joy like this, these three things happen. You begin to exemplify reasonableness. You begin to excel in prayer. And one thing on prayer, you'll never excel in prayer if it's focused on you. You need to, you need to focus it on God and the other. Uh, go back to that A.W. Tozer quote. Um, A.W. Tozer, Torontonian pastor, uh, was at Avenue Road Baptist Church many, many years ago, has written tons of books, um, one of the great writers on, on theology. He says, the self-sins are these. Self-righteousness, self-pity, self-confidence, self-sufficiency, self-admiration, self-love, and a host of others like them. They dwell too deep within us and are too much a part of our natures to come to our attention until the light of God is focused upon them. You know, if you look at this list, aside from self-righteousness, our society teaches us these are, what's wrong with these things? Self-pity? Yeah, we should, that's okay. You know, sometimes we're like, oh, you have too much self-pity, but a lot of times we're like, you know, it's okay. It's okay to be self, uh, to, it's okay to self-pity. Self-confidence, that's all our society teaches us we should have. You need to be self-confident, <laughs> our culture teaches us. That's how you're going to make it through life. You need to find yourself and be self-confident. Self-sufficiency is, is um, like winning a, an award. I mean, it's put on a pedestal. You know, it's, it's independence. It's, it's um, I can make it on my own type mentality. Self-admiration, no, none of us want to admit that, but we all want that. We all want, want to admire ourselves. Um, and then self-love, we talked about earlier how our society really, really pushes self-love. But let's take, uh, let's take self-confidence, for instance. You know, it's not that confidence is, is bad or sinful, okay? I think confidence is a good thing. I teach my girls, my six-year-old and my four-year-old, I want them to be confident, but not in themselves. And that's the difference. You know, some of us are, are, are sitting, you guys are sitting there and you're thinking, man, I just want more self-confidence. You know, I want to be like that person. They just have so much self-confidence, they're overflowing with it. You know the difference between you and that person who appears self-confidence? You know what that difference is? The difference is you know yourself. Like, you know your failures, you know your weaknesses, you know your struggles. That person just hasn't admitted that to themselves yet. They don't, and they're, they're a lot better at masking it, okay? Um, you're never going to be truly confident unless you're confident in something other than yourself, unless you're confident in Christ, in God. So when I teach my girls to be confident, I don't say, sweetie, you need to be confident uh, you know, this is, they had issues with going into, the, into their school in JK and SK uh, when they were young, uh, just on the first few weeks, just because it's hard, you know, new, new place, new class, all those things. Uh, I didn't say, sweetie, you need to be confident because you're the most beautiful person at this school, which is true, but I'm not going <laughs> to tell her that. Uh, 
I don't say you need to be confident because you're the most intelligent, which if you've ever talked to Emerson, she talks like a 12-year-old. She's really intelligent. Um, I, but I didn't say that to her. I didn't say, you're super intelligent. And I didn't even say, sweetie, just be yourself and people will love you. I didn't even say that. I said, Jesus is with you. You just need to be confident in Jesus. He's made you uniquely. He's made you specifically with different gifts and, and different things. And you need to be confident in who Jesus is. And then you'll discover who you are. And she like, when I said that to her, she was like, yeah. She like puffed out her chest and she walked in. She was like, I'm confident in Jesus. She looked back and kept on walking. Um, and that's what our society needs. That's what you guys need. You don't need to be more self-confident. You don't need to be more self-righteous or you don't need to be more self-sufficient. You need to depend on God more, not on yourself more. You need to admire God more, not yourself. You need to love God more, not yourself. Uh, so I love this quote. Take a picture of it. Write it down. Um, the third thing I said to you guys is the peace of God. So if you're sitting there, <clears throat> and I said if you will... You'll find joy if you will lose yourself. You need to figure out what that is. Because once you start finding joy, these things that Tozer listed, these pieces of you will start falling away. Once you start pursuing the Father and finding joy in the Lord, like Paul says, in Christ. And joy isn't, isn't an emotion. Joy gets manifested emotionally sometimes, but joy is actually a production of the Spirit in your hearts. The Bible talks about joy being the fruit of the Spirit. And so joy is something that is sitting in you, that is always there if, this, if you have the Spirit of God in you. Because it's, you can go this way. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> because it is, it is being produced in you. Okay, so happiness is different. Happiness comes and goes. But joy is always there whether you feel like it's there or not. And joy gets manifested emotionally sometimes, but sometimes it doesn't. It's just there and you know it's there because it's built on truth, not on how you feel. Okay, and when you think of joy that way, your anxiety, your, your mental state, your emotional state, you won't be defined by that. Now, you may, still be, you may still worry from time to time. You may still be anxious from time to time. But you won't be defined by it because joy will be present and being produced in your life, okay? Because you're finding it in the Lord, in Jesus, in him. And so as a church, we also need to figure out what we need to lose. If you're new to Trinity Life this morning, we're not a church. We're a young church, uh, two and a half years old, we're not a church that's ever going to get caught up in church culture. And if you don't know what that means, um, we're, we're just not going to do it. You know what that means. If you know what that means, you know what it means. I'm not going to explain it. We're going to seek the kingdom first. We're going to seek his righteousness first. And when we rejoice in the Lord, we need to remember the truths that Paul gives us. When we pray, we need to remember the truths that Paul gives us. You know, a lot of times we isolate this passage and we forget that he's just told us all these tremendous things about, the, about Jesus, that our lives are in him, that actually when we die, we gain more. That we can forget what happened in our past. He says, forget what lies behind, strain forward to what lies ahead. 
because Christ has already redeemed all that. He says, you're like shining lights in the world that testify to God. And he says, your citizenship isn't in this world, it's in heaven. So whether you are a follower of Jesus this morning or you're not a follower of Jesus, that's what's in Jesus. So you can have that in Jesus. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, we need to start living that way. We need to wake up to who we are in Christ. He says that the citizenship is so powerful. He says we are citizens of heaven, not of this world. And so the cares of this world shouldn't affect you like they affect other people because you don't belong here. You don't live here. Your, citizen, your citizenship is not here. It's somewhere where there's glory and power and restoration and reconciliation of all things. And there's praise and worship happening constantly. That's where your citizenship lies. And so, really, you don't have to find joy. If you're in Jesus, you have it. You just need to take it. You just need to grab it. And you need to live like you have joy. And when you do that before this world, you bring glory to the Father. You bring glory to Him because you're not living joyously because of anything that you've done. You're living in joy all because of what Jesus has done in your life. Because what He's accomplished on your behalf. Because He's overcome and He's victorious. That's why I picture that Jesus next to me when I'm praying. Because it reminds me of what I have in Jesus. And so grab onto that joy and live in that joy so that others can see that and want that joy. Not because you're anything great, because Jesus is the greatest. And you get to testify to that every day if you're a follower of Jesus.